there. Welcome to the Alongside a Podcast. This is a bonus episode uh, for the beginning of uh, February, and I'd just like to use it to commemorate the season we're in, in terms of remembering the Holocaust, uh, the day we just um, come together around. Um, this is a, a, a lovely short recording from uh, with a conversation with Simon Westmacott, who was asked to oversee the process and develop the process and apply the process for um, applying the reparations for claims um, from 1925 to 1945 and the victims. Uh, it's an extraordinary uh, story of collaboration. Simon tells it as though it's a fairly, you know, something that happens every day, but actually was exceptional. And I just... Um, it's Simon as the alongsider of all those participants, um, parties, um, many different nations, uh, com commercial organisations and others who were seeking justice and fairness. Uh, the process had to be trusted. It had to be transparent. And I just wonder whether this is a, is a useful example of how we can be at our best as alongsiders and others alongside us. In order, in order to um, establish justice um, and get the right thing done. I commend it to you. Uh, any feedback, uh, that would be good. Uh, but for now, I introduce you to Simon and then his a part of his story. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Alongside a Podcast. Um, I'm introducing a friend of mine and colleague, Simon Westmacott, West who I know um, and have known for, for some years, um, where he came alongside me um, to ask me, what do I do? <laughs> Which was, uh, I'm an executive coach. And, uh, and, and what ultimately happened was he introduced me to Green Pastures, who you heard about uh, last month in January. Um, uh, from Pastor Pete. But this is Simon, who's done many, many different things. Um, and he's going to tell us about that in a little while. But first of all, Simon, welcome and thank you for joining us. Um, I all often ask people at the beginning of this is, if somebody else was going to introduce you, um, what would they say? Can I ask you that? <laughs> That you can ask me the question whether you'll get an answer is another matter. Uh, that's, a, that's a tricky one. Um, my immediate thought was when you were talking about alongsiders, um, I came alongside you, yes, but you came alongside about 40 or 50 people at that LHOP training day. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said, This is the first one I've done of these. And you said, if you think this is just another Christian training day, you'll go along, go away, and there's there's not much different. He said, I can tell you, there will be a difference. You you will have a change in your life. And I thought, wow, wow, that's a pretty arrogant sort of claim. But you were absolutely spot on. You were right. It was. It was a terrific day. And so, how do I introduce myself? Well, it's some, somebody who's wandered around all over the place in his life, <laughs> and uh, perhaps, perhaps it was all for such a day as now at Green Pastures, where I've done ten years with Green Pastures this year. Mm, mm, mm. And 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 if I could ask you another question, um, 
know, towards the end of these conversations, I sometimes ask um, this, but I'm, I, it seems quite timely to ask it now. Um, we've talked about the concept of the alongsider, the, that being uh, anyone um, we come alongside to support, say, as parent, as coach, as mentor, as boss, um, or indeed uh, who um, someone who comes alongside us. Um, uh, we're going to hear a little bit about the the reparations and the process that you develop um, to um, apply uh, those funds that have been collected from insurance companies uh, to bring reparations to those who suffered as a result of um, uh, the consequences of war uh, in the Holocaust. Um, so we're going to hear that from you and your story, which is amazing. But just thinking about this idea of of alongsider. Um, what, from your perspective, um, and dare I say, you're in your your seventh decade. I think I'm right in saying. Well, I think it's eighth actually. Oh, right. So I suppose that depends on how you count. Okay, eighth decade. Um, what would you say uh, makes for the qualities of a good alongsider, either someone alongside you or are you alongside another? Well, the, the immediate thought that comes to mind is probably somebody who's had a few corners knocked off mm. uh, and who can listen. And you, you've got to have a bit of compassion, I think. I mean, my wife complains and I get sort of sucked into dealing, spending an awful lot of time and in, in involvement with other people, which is probably a, a degree of jealousy on her part because she would like to me to take her away on nice holidays and so forth which at my age um, we haven't done very much about, although we've had some, we've had some fabulous traveling in the, in the past, um, to my mind made even more fabulous because somebody else was paying for it. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was the icing on the cake. Um, no, we, we've had some, some, some great times, been to some great places. Um, thank the Lord. And it's been a real privilege. Um, but alongside, uh, yeah, people in need. Um, I do have a sort of um, yearning to help people, possibly too much so, and I can I can get too involved. But I remember somebody um, who actually lived in Tunbridge who gave me some wonderful ministry about 25 years ago. Um, and he said, I've forgotten what the, the organisation was called because he, he parted company with it after a while. And he said, you know, I, I get involved and we... we we have this ministry time with people and we pray with them. Uh, but he said afterwards, it's absolutely essential for us that we detach. So next time, I, I probably won't remember anything of this time. And I thought, well, that was pretty good advice. Um, I think it's rather like surgeons who, who do very tricky stuff um, and then have to switch off in order to maintain sanity. Yeah. It's good advice. No, I hear that. I hear that. And, uh, and you won't be surprised, listeners, to know that on the Enneagram, Simon is a is a one, which is a strict perfectionist. <laughs> so this is about knowing what the right thing to do is, uh, and the right thing needs to happen. So, actually, in in often in context of supporting someone, sometimes we need to just um, detach and, and and allow the person to move. Otherwise, it probably would be manipulation. Actually, yes. But, uh, somebody once said that manipulation, ultimately, in a in, in a in a fruitful way, is actually taking somebody by the hand to a place they want to go to, 
um, which is manipulation. Um, and I think there's, that there's something in that. But no, I really appreciate um, I appreciate what you said there, and I appreciate you 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 come alongside me in in different things, and uh, and likewise, I think I have come alongside you, and I think that's the testament of of what we need in our communities is is a mutual um, support. But sometimes the other has got something which we don't have ourselves. So look, I, 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 I'm I'm going to. Um, I'm going to leave it there. But it, it, is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Just as this 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 sense of this alongside uh, alongside other qualities. I think the only thing I would suggest is if you if you want to be, can I say a, a deep alongsider, a really an alongsider who's going to make a difference to people, just be careful not to get too involved, mm. because that that I think. Can upset your judgment and also it can upset family relationships and in the context of the the commission that you were asked to come in and, um, and audit and produce an audit methodology for the allocation of the, the reparations I, I, what occurs to me is that, that would be an extremely good quality there because you need to stand um uh, not it's not about being emotionally involved it's about actually doing getting the right thing done and getting the right people connected uh, it, it was um yeah it was i think it got my ei up from sort of zero to about three out of ten <laughs> ei being emotional intelligence yeah okay yes. well, simon uh really good just that's a brilliant little in introduction i'm going to add the, the rest of what you said about the, the story of how that came about uh but for now uh this i'm calling a bonus edition of uh, alongside and thank you very much for that um <laughs> Really, really appreciate that. It, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Yeah, out of the blue came this call from somebody who said, we are, wait for it, the International Commission on Holocaust-era insurance claims. And we're looking for an audit manager. And I thought, well, who on earth is this idiot? Uh, let's kill this straight away. So I said, well, I've avoided audit like the plague ever since I qualified. Maybe he said brightly, that doesn't matter. <laughs> Who is this guy? Um, and he said, are you available? And I said, well, thought for a minute. I said, well, I could be in about a month. He said, well, will you come and see us? I said, well, all right. Interview experience. So I went off to see them and they said, well, we'll be seeing other people as well. I said, well, of course you will. You, you hire an experienced auditor for this process. The next day he rings me up and says, we'd like you to take the job. So I reread the job description, which meant it didn't enlighten me at all then, nor did it seven years later. Um, and he said, it'll be three or four days a week, maybe five occasionally. Lord will be over by next April. And this was November 1999. So I said, well, right. Well, seven years later, I never billed them for less than 12 days a month unless I was on holiday. Wow. <laughs> and the politics were unreal, but it was it was um, a remarkably worthwhile um, setup. Actually, there's a long story to it, but essentially, it it rustled up half a billion US from the five European life insurance companies, uh, which got distributed either to claimants who just had to have first name, last name, date of birth, um, and I can tell you all about that if you really want to know. Um, on reduced standards of proof. So that was a 
pretty huge process and the five house rules, which is what we had to audit. So I hired all of the four big firms and one sort of group A firm. And politically, we had to hire a couple of Israeli firms. And I was also dealing with the German Baffin, who was the um, bank regulator and insurance regulator as well. So that was all quite fun and interesting. But, was, but in a nutshell, what was the what was this that you were working in there? Well, we, they wanted this audit manager, so I, I somehow took the job. Um, it was auditing the compliance of the, the insurance companies with the five house rules, which is basically search all your records, secure them, make them searchable, um, accept the the process the claims that come in, and um, have a system for paying them out. I think those, as I remember, were the, the five house rules. So we had to had to audit the company's compliance. This is something that nobody had ever done before, let alone audit. So we had to dream up an audit process. Um, and by the time I came on board, they'd been talking to three or four of the big four firms anyway. And that was all sort of going nowhere. It's a bit of a pig's breakfast. Because the, the deputy chairman, bless him, I think he's died now, was a, a former treasury man who was a lovely academic who liked nothing better than a sort of esoteric problem to, to sort out and unravel. So com complexity was right up his street, which of course didn't really take us forward. So he he, he left eventually and I, I took over the, the, the role of sort of running the audits. Um, I, I'm rather chuffed to say I, we signed off 29, I think it was, audit reports. Um, for the whole of the process for, for the companies and their various subsidiaries here and there. And I set up a system whereby the companies produced a report of what they'd done and then the auditors audited it. And then we had a, an audit review from the stakeholders from the commission. And from the point of view of claimants, uh, how would they have interacted with that? Uh, that well, they, they submitted claims and we had about 100,000 eventually. I mean, they had... A call, a call center in the States with eight languages, 24-7. So they, they just called, that this is widely advertised in the Jewish press. I mean, in theory, it, it extended to anybody who'd had a, a life insurance policy in the Holocaust era, which is 1925 to 1945. Right. Mm. And did you, um, did you have to travel for that much? Yeah, there's a little bit. We used to have these debrief meetings in various centers where the companies operated so we we had uh, I had quite a few trips to, to DC and the, the, the European companies they're all European none of them were UK um, so we had debrief meetings in nice places like Vienna um, Vienna we didn't go to Rome um, Paris um, Munich I think we went to Hamburg at one point. Um, Zurich. Um, maybe Geneva, I can't remember. Um, can, yeah. I ask, can, can I ask you, when you, when you got the call um, about that, Yeah. Um, did you envisage that it would have opened up into what it actually became as, as, a, as a, an issue that needed a solution uh, in the way that it did? Um, well, no, not really. I mean, it was it was hugely political, um, and it all started because um, 
one of the um, Italian life insurers, Generali, which ironically was started by two Jewish families in the 1860s, wanted to buy Migdal, which is an insurance firm in Israel. Well, Israel's about six million people. And um, it was half owned by the Jewish state. And they said, well, you can have Migdal, provided you have a, a restitution process for unpaid Holocaust era insurance claims. So Generali thought, well, that's okay. And they, they paid up $6 million there and then and another $6 million on the drip. Um, well, $100 million later, they were still paying. Wow. <laughs> and and, and that, that was, you know, then after, once that got going, um, word got around in the States where a good, all insurance in the States is regulated by the States, not on a federal basis. So the States have all got their own insurance regulators, a good many of whom just happen to be Jewish, uh, primarily in places like Florida, um, California, I think maybe New York, um, possibly Pennsylvania, one or two other places. So they all latched onto this and said, hey, if you want to keep doing business in my state, you've got to set up this restitution setup. And so it spread. <laughs> That's how it all came to be. Mm -hmm. And within the commission, we had representatives from all the insurance companies. Um, oh, there were another 12 German insurance companies which followed what was going on, and they were audited by Baffin. Um, and um, so all, all these, these companies were there. And then we had members, a um, couple of Israeli government representatives, um, U.S. state insurance regulators, uh, observers from the the claims conference, which was the claims for claims for material claims for, against something like the claims for Jewish material claims against Germany Inc., which is sort of umbrella organization in, in the states, um, and uh, our, our major. Uh, deep me debrief meetings we could have 30 or 40 people turn up easily mm. um, and um, yeah so now and again we would have sort of major meetings in DC chaired by Lawrence Eagleberger who was a former Secretary of State um, but the politics the emotions were unbelievable mm. and uh, in the early days I was the piggy in the middle because I used to have a man from one of them, from AXA um, who was determined to make as much nuisance as he could. Although outside work, he was delightful. And the Israelis, who were absolutely, I mean, they were pugilists of the first order. So they used to set me up in the middle and fire off um, allegations against the other side. And then the other side would get all wound up, fire allegations back. And I was the Aunt Sally in the middle, which was not a comfortable place to be. But eventually I got the hang of it. <laughs> what did you get the hang of? Uh, coping with them. Mm. Uh, eventually, the one of the Israeli guys, he'd been a tank commander on the Golan Heights, and we reckoned he'd probably lost a few screws in the process, so he got replaced. But he really was quite impossible. Mm. Mm. And uh, well, that's amazing. And how did that come to an end? came to an end when we finished all the audits. So that's the process. Was that was the process. Finish all the audits, finish all the processing. And at the end of it, there were about 150 million US left over. I think that got handed to the claims conference to do with whatever it wanted. Right. So the, all the audits were signed off. 
there was somebody said afterwards, well, if it hadn't been for the audits being signed off clean, um, it would the whole process wouldn't have worked. Mm. Which I sort of dawned on me at the time, but um, it was quite amusing because I, I, I can probably say this now, it was a long time ago, but I, I drafted some of Baffin's audit reports and I certainly drafted one of the Israeli firm's audit reports, <laughs> which, which amused me somewhat. Because insurance is about confidence, isn't it, at the end of the day, uh, which enables XYZ to happen? Uh, well, it is. And, and there was, um, I remember one of the the, the, the corporate councils, one of the German subsidiaries of AXA, I think it was, who said to me, uh, insurance companies like to insure stones underwater against fire. And I thought, yeah, that about sums them up. 